Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to Coindesk TV. You're looking at the hash right now, or maybe you're listening on a podcast after the fact. Either way is good. We're just glad you are here. I'm here. I'm Zach Seward. We got Adam Levine and Jen Sanasi with us today. We're going to get going, starting with some Binance news from Jen. Jen, take it away. Okay, so Binance Labs has raised $500 million for a Web3 fund. The venture capital arm of the exchange is looking to discover and support projects and founders with the potential to build and lead Web3 across DeFi, NFTs, gaming, metaverse, social media, and more. Now, the market has taken a downturn, but we're still talking about these massive funds. It's no A16Z 4.5 billion fund, but $500 million is still a lot. Adam, I'm going to pass it off to you. What do you make of Binance looking to invest in Web3 like everyone else? Well, I think the important thing to remember when you're looking at these big companies that have been around for a while and that have made a lot of money already is that market leaders don't always stick around. And so when you find yourself in a position of advantage, like Binance currently finds itself with really significant revenues, again, great profitability and just ridiculous amounts of money, that are pouring into them for all of the trading fees that even in a down market, they're still collecting. Ultimately, the question is, what do you do with that money in order to turn kind of from the current moment into, you know, a gigantic behemoth that can never be displaced? One way you do that is you convert that money into investments into other companies who you can then help through your current dominance of whatever market you're in to be successful and then also be exposed to sort of the money and the gains that they'll make. So that's kind of my read of the situation. It makes perfect sense to me. Zach, I saw your hand go up. What are you thinking? Yeah, I think the bear market's going to be sort of consolidation season, but also putting bets on promising things that may ultimately lead to an incumbent's demise. So if you're Binance Labs, which has been in this game for a while and has invested in a lot of prominent projects in the space, you definitely want to put some of that capital toward building the next big thing that could either unseat your business or complement it in interesting ways. And I think we're going to see kind of a lot of that through this bear cycle, either M&As, consolidation, and or just a plethora of investments as big players, again, as Adam mentioned, who have the capital to do so, can spread their bets across a bunch of different things in the space. And it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, the thing that I'm really interested in coming out of this Luna collapse is how that's going to inform the next crop of startups that really drives that adoption cycle next bull run. 
going to be really interesting to see how that, if at all, informs what gets invested in from funds like this and others that we've seen announced in recent weeks. So you'll remember that they committed $500 million in equity funding to Elon Musk's Twitter buy. I wonder what's going to happen with that. It feels like a while since we've heard about what's going on with with Elon and Twitter. But another notable uh, investment that Binance Labs made that kind of took us by surprise was when they made a strategic investment of $200 million in Forbes earlier this year ahead of a potential SPAC deal. Now, Forbes just recently announced that they would not be going ahead with the SPAC because of waning interest in the investment vehicle, saying that several recent SPACs have not performed well. I don't know. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit of finance news. You know, we're talking about these big investments, but it feels like they're getting a little bit of momentum in doing something different. And then they're taking a few steps backwards. Adam, I see you nodding your head there. What did you make of this other finance news? I think, again, it's a continuation of trend. Again, like not having money is a problem. Having money is a problem. They're different problems, but they're both problems. If you have a lot of money, then you need to figure out good ways to steward that money and turn it into other stuff. You mentioned the Forbes deal. And the funny part about that, right, is that like the SPAC vehicle really has proven to be entirely unsuccessful for the most part. All right. This is interesting. This is a bit adjacent to what we talk about, about crypto usually. Control, show me this story. We're talking about Elon Musk. We talked about Elon Musk briefly and his bid to take over Twitter. Now he is firing some shots at remote work. He's saying for Tesla, you got to be here in the office at least 40 hours a week or else you can go get yourself another job. But as a distributed industry that is global in nature, and some of us here are indeed working from home, it's interesting to see Tesla CEO Elon Musk come out rather strongly against the whole WFH phenomenon. All right, I'm going to toss this to Adam. This has uh, sparked a conversation, obviously, on Twitter. We've seen different companies take different stances to return to the office in this sort of kind of post-COVID moment. And this one is definitely an interesting one. Yeah, so I have really mixed feelings about Elon Musk. Uh, I have for a long time been a Tesla skeptic, and I have for a long time just generally uh, felt like he's done a good job of sort of navigating the waters in terms of you know government subsidies and kind of other things that have given him some significant advantages that have kind of always biased me against the types of uh, stuff that he's done. But on the other hand, he has somewhat impressed me just by kind of stepping up and going against consensus. And I think that this is another one of those moves, is that there's a politic way to do this, where you do it in a way that seems nice, but you still get the same outcome. And he's not bothering to do that. He's just saying, hey, this is what I think of this. I don't care what you think, like, you know, do what I say or find another job. And so I have to say, I actually respect that a little bit. I love the whole kind of work from home thing. I think that it makes a ton of sense. But again, there is something to be said about the intensity that comes from, especially when you're in like a product development environment, being in the same place and just having those kind of constant experiences of that. So again, like while it's not a move that I would make, I actually do respect the way that he's done it and think that it's, uh, you know, indicative of kind of what he's been doing recently, which is just whatever he wants, irrespective of what other people think. I took personal offense to this quote. He said, there are, of course, companies that don't require this, but when was the last time they shipped a great new product? And I thought about this show, we do it completely remote. And I think that this is a great product. And so I think that people can work from home. And I think that we've seen over the past two years that it is completely possible for people to work remotely and for businesses to carry on and for great products to be shipped. Adam, I do agree with you, though. I think there is something to be said 
being in the same room with the people you're working with and having leadership presence amongst teams. I think that does a lot for morale, especially when you're working in, you know, a really fast moving tech environment. But the way that he's gone about this, it made me laugh. And I think it's maybe a little too strong handed. I also think it's interesting, though, Twitter is a fully remote workplace. And so if he does buy Twitter, which it seems he's going to, unless he's going to pay a $1 billion fine, I think we're going to see a lot of people leave Twitter. Zach? Well, yeah, no, this was, I mean, famously, he said that he was going to turn the Twitter office into a homeless shelter given San Francisco's uh, housing crisis. So let's remember that briefly in the uh, annals of Elon trolling people history. But I will say (laughs) that I think this comes down to Adams and Bits, right? This is a company that makes things. And I think there is allusions and actually no direct references here in these notes to the people on the factory floor assembling these automobiles. And I think for a company that does that, it certainly makes more sense to show solidarity among both the floor Mm -hmm. workers and those working in the digital realm, maybe more so than those assembling the cars themselves. So I think there is something to be said for kind of rallying the troops around a shared vision for what this company that makes things should be doing as it relates to in-office policies. Whether that applies to other companies, I certainly think is an open question. You know, I'm a huge fan of remote work in a space that uh, is all bits. I think it works, but at a company that has a very big Adam business, not present company excluded, Adam here with a T, sorry if that's not clear, it makes sense for them to be a bit more forceful in terms of getting everyone on the same page in terms of an in-office environment. But Adam, I'll throw it to you. And they can afford it too. That's the other thing, right? Like one of the big advantages about sort of remote teams, which I've built a number of across, you know, both media and kind of entrepreneurship is that you get to pick where you're employing people. And there are advantages of employing people in different areas. It gives you access to kind of deeper talent pools in a lot of ways. On the other hand, if you don't need those advantages because you already are incredibly well-funded and you can really hire whoever you want and pay them whatever you want without it really impacting kind of the bottom line, then it's just like, it's something that's a nice to have there. And in this case, it seems like it's no longer nice to have. So again, I think that this is not the uh, the last uh, kind of against the grain take that we're going to get out of Elon Musk. And I'm increasingly, like I said, coming to anticipate those and enjoy them quite a bit. <laughs> I love Elon news. Such a nice break. Definitely Very funny a that we have that gets now. you thinking, yeah. gets you chatting. Some people get really riled up <laughs> about it. Others, they just ride it for the lows. And we're here to come in as such. <laughs> All right. Now, the Bank of International Settlements, they are becoming a bit of a degen when it comes to the DeFi regulation conversation. And they're getting a bit more involved. Previously, they sort of said that decentralized and decentralized finance was a bit of a farce. And now they're saying, hey, actually, we can use DeFi as a vehicle for regulating this thing. Maybe there's a smart contract way we can do this in a way that comports with how these systems work. And I think that's pretty smart because for now we've seen sort of jamming of square pegs into round holes as it relates to new technologies and old regulations. So at least the BIS is thinking in terms of how do we make this work for the system at hand? And this offers a bit of nuance on that conversation. So I'm going to toss it straight to Adam for his thoughts on this latest BIS proclamation. I love it when we talk about stories about the Bank for International Settlement, the IMF, all of these other kind of giant, supranational, you know, powerful organizations. So the BIS, for those who don't follow the uh, total wonk closely, uh, is the Bank for International Settlements. It is effectively the central bank's central bank. Uh, so I think that actually this is an OK move. There, there's a couple of things here. One, there is something really to be had from DeFi, specifically from the transparency that comes to a system that is built 
using smart contracts on public blockchains as their basis. And that is something that really could be a benefit to the global system and people around the world. Now, it's not something that will help everyone, but we're really talking about the foundations of the system here. And the foundations of the system that we exist in today are really hand-wavy, really relying on individual people, individual companies to do particular things in particular ways that are very opaque from the outside, where we just kind of have to trust them. And I think that we've seen over the years that we can't trust them. <laughs> we can't really trust any of these people who run any of these systems. They're not doing a good job of managing them. And so the idea that you could see kind of a rework of the system built on smart contracts rather than counterparty risk, that actually is something that's interesting to me. But the thing I always have to come back on when we talk about these types of stories is that what we are looking at here are the people who currently are in power, are the organizations who currently benefit from the broken system that we have today, who are looking at the new system and saying to themselves, not how can we improve our system, but how can we co-opt this or how can we utilize this such that we can take away some of the people who would be interested in a new system and instead of redirecting them to something we don't control, redirect them to something that we do control at least more than we would if it was a truly neutral system. So that's the important thing. You know, cryptocurrency really, when it comes down to it, it's about two different things. On the one side, it's speculation. On the other side, it's power. And kind of the, the speculation drives price, but the power is the story that's really behind all of this. The power of who controls money, who gets to make these decisions. Is it all of us or is it a select group of very smart people who make bad choices for us? <laughs> I know which one I like, but the BIS, of course, is going to have a different opinion. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, the Bank for International Settlements has been issuing some really interesting reports lately that are really different from a lot of the other bank reports we read. And it feels like they've come a long way since 2021 when they were saying some kind of outlandish things. And it feels like they're applying critical thinking here. So I think it's interesting. I still am, I guess, confused as to how this would work and how regulators might think about this. You know, they talk about embedded supervision. What is embedded supervision? Because we're talking about transparent ledgers here, right? So we can see everything, but what is this embedded supervision and what role are regulators playing? I don't know, Zach, if you have any, any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's not explicitly mentioned, but you know, we've seen tools that have been rolled out in the DeFi space that say, okay, here are OFAC sanctioned wallets that, hey, Dex, if you touch these wallets, you're going to get in trouble. There's a smart contract based way for them to import some of those compliance protocols into this system. The keepers of these decentralized networks, like typically the labs or the ink team behind the software that runs on Ethereum or other smart contract chains to stay compliant with international sanctions laws can implement these things at the into the interface level. Typically the protocol level is uh, unaffected by this, but at the interface level, there are ways and tools that these protective measures can be baked into the DeFi pie. So I think stuff like that is sort of what this is hinting at. And I think, again, these are transparent open ledgers that can be monitored in real time. And there's something to be said for using that transparency to the greater benefit. And I think that's what this conversation is ultimately hinted at. But I'm throwing it to Adam for his thoughts. Yeah, let me, let me just build a little bit on that. Uh, Zach, I agree with everything that you just said there. You know, I mean, the reality of it is, is that regulations are influenced by regulators. And what we have seen over and over and over again is that regulatory bodies are regularly, no pun intended, captured by the industries which they actually manage. And this wouldn't actually be as much of a problem in a DeFi-driven world, because in a DeFi-driven world, you could, as Zach said, have just little pieces of software that just watch different accounts on the blockchain, watch flows, and you can do all of that, which is not something you can do in the traditional system, which then means that if the regulators are 
intentionally or through incompetence overlooking something that's actually important, you can have, you know, watchdogs that basically are watching all of these same things. And so simply by providing that transparency and making it such that you don't have to have a, you know, a privileged relationship with these institutions in order to see the kind of broad systemic things that are happening across the entire system. So many of the things that happen happen because these problems are allowed to fester and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And And then at the end of it, you get, you know, what in kind of forest fire terms is called a conflagration, right? Where you get all of these little problems that come together and create one gigantic unstoppable tsunami of terror, basically, (laughs) uh, in whatever kind of industry you're looking at. So I think it's, it's a really great way to kind of engineer a financial system, assuming that everything continues to go and to develop in the way that it is developing. I continue to to doubt the sincerity uh, of this coming from the Bank for International Settlements. My general sense is that, again, these people are looking for opportunities to poo-poo stuff wherever possible. And, you know, if they see an idea like this, they talk about it only insofar as it gives them the ability to try and co-opt interest in these types of technologies. They're not actually really interested. But with that said, let's get to our last story of the day. So Ethereum, home to the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap, is moving closer to the much-anticipated, long-in-development transition to a proof-of-stake consensus system. This has some advantages around energy efficiency right off the bat. And then uh, as we get kind of deeper into it, there are many hopes that this will allow the system to scale significantly beyond its current levels, which would then lower costs, among other things. By the most recent estimates from founder Vitalik Buterin, the real transition is going to happen, or at least could happen in August, and that assumes that things go well. One of the most important things that needs to go well is the test launch of the chain uh, or the test merge of the chain, where the exact processes that developers intend to use to do it for real will be practiced on one of Ethereum's several test nets. So there's more to this story, but Zach, for me, this draws back to the the basics of the ETH 2.0 story. It's been a long time coming. We've seen lots of timelines like this before. I feel like I've personally been waiting for this for like six years. Uh, do, do you think that this is, you know, like in, whether in August or September, like that we really are kind of close to this transition moment or is this another kind of Charlie Brown football thing? It does kind of feel like that thing, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And <laughs> have you been around this thing a few times? I feel like I was hurt the last time that this was coming around. So I'm naturally wary that it's going to actually happen this time. That said, I do think it's going to actually happen this time. And I do think things are progressing relatively smoothly toward it. We saw this reorg on the Beacon chain not long ago, seven block reorganization that was a bit of a hiccup. No actual funds, as far as I can tell, were harmed because it is sort of that test run that's running in parallel to mainnet. So some of the pain was not felt there. But I think, again, that was an opportunity to realize that assembling these systems in flight is highly difficult, tricky, and time intensive. And I think as Ethereum becomes bigger and bigger, more and more important, sort of undergirding more and more dollars within the crypto economy, Ethereum developers are rightly cautious and concerned to make sure that nothing goes wrong when this actually happens. Now, that's been the cover for delay after delay after delay. This has been years and years and years in the making. Pretty much once Ethereum launched, it was already eyeing that next proof of stake transition, right? To get away from this interstitial proof of work, dirty mining, energy intensive Mm -hmm. way to secure a blockchain. So Again, I am cautiously optimistic that this is going to happen, but we've seen some of these hiccups. We've seen some of this momentum toward the thing. And I feel like it is productive hiccups and productive momentum that may make the merge actually happen this time. But who am I to say? I'll pass it to Jen. Adam, I have two questions for you. 
One is, are you personally, do you feel that pain? I I heard that pain in your question (laughs) to Zach after waiting for six years. Do you, how do you feel about this deadline that keeps getting pushed out? And the second one is maybe a little bit sensational, but I think I have PTSD from all of the hacks we've seen over the past year. What is the potential, let's say, during this dress rehearsal or during the merge that there is some kind of hiccup and and people lose funds? So let me take the second part first. So as far as this, the test net, you know, transition is concerned, there's no concern about losing funds. In a future scenario, really, there's not so much concern about losing funds. What there's concern about is the creation of multiple blockchains or multiple versions of the Ethereum blockchain. And that's something that very much could happen. When you're talking about these types of systems, uh, you know, you're talking about systems that rely on a lot of people who don't know each other for the most part and who don't necessarily have incentives that are the same or that, you know, objectives that align with each other. You're, you're trying to get them to all agree to a set of rules and then to have everybody make the change over to those set of rules at the same time. And then also you're making a change in consensus mechanism, which is the most fundamental part of a blockchain's technology stack is how does it achieve consensus? So this is a huge transition, incredibly, incredibly ambitious. And even so, like in a bad scenario where something like this happens, you might see there'd be two blockchains, you know, an ETH proof of work and an ETH proof of stake. And you might see maybe like in a worst case scenario, the proof of stake one just doesn't work. Well, you still have the proof of work one. So really what you're looking at here is not so much the concern about like fund loss. What you're looking at here is the concern about confidence loss. Uh, even when you're talking about the the kind of rollback that uh, that Zach was describing, where you know there were seven blocks on the new chain that had to be reorganized, well, even if that happened on the main chain in real life with real money, it probably still wouldn't have resulted in any meaningful losses of customer funds, just because these types of structures really aren't that vulnerable to these types of attacks. So again, it always comes down to confidence. Do people have confidence that this is the technology stack that they are best on or that other people will think is the one that they want to be on? Because there's very much a network effect and sort of a Bitcoin-like Ethereum is the obvious choice type of math that's going on here. Uh, to your first question, uh, you know, I don't take any of this stuff personally at this point. I've just become increasingly skeptical over time because, you know, these, these are hard problems that we're trying to solve here, right? Like, this is not like there's a roadmap and we're just going down here's, you know, instructions one through 10. We don't know what we're doing. And it's taken a long time to figure out what we're doing. I have high hopes that we'll see it. But at the same time, we'll be surprised if it slips again. Zach, you get the last word. I think it's safe to assume that something could go wrong when this happens. Not trying to FUD the merge or anything like that. But I think it is prudent to assume that at least some hiccup will occur. And I think it will be interesting to see how the community responds, right? Does this become the marketing opportunity of a lifetime for some of these competing base layers that promise to do the things that Ethereum can do? but faster and cheaper. And I think that goes back to Adam's point, the crisis of confidence. If that has long-term ramifications, should something go wrong? That could be really interesting to see how that changes the dynamic of the market heading into that next bull run. Maybe there is an emergent smart contract based chain that can supersede Ethereum in cultural importance within the crypto economy. Maybe that changes the calculus going forward for how these competing base layers work and attract users. And it's going to be interesting to see if there's some opportunistic marketing around that. We already saw when Terra imploded, different chains rolling out funds to attract Terra projects to build on their greener pastures. Should that happen with Ethereum, who stands to benefit the most and who kind of gets left behind? You know, there's also the world in which Ethereum on a proof of stake world is far more efficient and also has that critical mass, that network effect where people are, that it makes those other base layers look far 
more unattractive, far less attractive, I guess would be the clear way to say that. I think probably the people who are involved in getting this up and running are fully aware of the stakes that are involved in switching to proof of stake. All right, that's going to be it for today. We lost Will. F's in the chat for Will. He's gone. We lost him to the internet goblins, but there's so much more to look forward to. I think a week from today, I'm flying down to Austin. I don't know about you guys, but Consensus is coming up next week. And this is crazy. The Hash is doing shows in front of a live audience. No laugh track needed. Live audience, (laughs) real people, real sounds, emotions, feelings, noises. It's going to be great. Also, longtime fans of the show know how much we love to give out desk tokens to loyal viewers. Desk is back in a big way this year at the IRL consensus and desk drops to our lovely fans will also be occurring. So heads up for that. Check that out. There's more info on desk over at coindesk.com. You should go read up on it and figure out how to set up your wallet. Okay. That's all I got. That was a lot of promos today. Jen, Adam, how was it? You good? Everyone good over there? We're good. It was wonderful. I am missing Will a bit, but you know, he'll be back tomorrow. All right. We'll see him then. We'll see you then. Thanks for being (laughs) here. It's the Hash on Coindesk TV. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 